Some of you uh, had a rain day, rain days this week. I hope you enjoyed it. It's not going to happen when you get older. They don't just cancel work. We're starting up beat today. I know a lot of you kids love school. You love school? Well, look at that. A little bit different response than I was expecting. Wait till you get older and you have to go to meetings. <laughs> meetings that you don't control. Meetings where someone else sets the agenda and you just hope they stick to that agenda. Now, there's also meetings where there are no agendas. Those are the scary meetings. Don't go to those meetings. It's not just meetings, is it? It's life. So many of you have an agenda for the day, and the day looks nothing like you had planned, often, often because of those blessed children that were so cute when you were born. There's so many situations in which the agenda of our life circumstances is out of our hands. We cannot control it. What is in our hands is the agenda of our lives, what we're about. And to be very clear, your life has an agenda. You're about something in your life. You may not know what it is, but you are about something. What you're doing and what your aims are in your life. Jesus had an agenda. His agenda was for the good of this world and the world opposed. The world still opposes Jesus' agenda. You ever thought about that? How strange that is. Who sets the agenda of your life? Maybe one of the most famous poems in the world, Invictus. William Ernest Henley writes, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's so appealing. Is it true? You have that kind of power? Is that the pathway to freedom? Do you have that kind of control over your agenda? This morning, we want to think about all of this together from John 7. John 7. We've been in John. We continue in John, this book that was written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so by believing, have life in his name. And here's what I want you to see this morning from John 7, 1 through 24. Jesus's agenda was not set by this world. Jesus's agenda was not set by this world. Following him means yours will not be either. Following Jesus means your agenda will not be set by this world either. So his agenda was not set by this world, and if you follow him, yours will not be set by this world either. Two points. Jesus lived by God's time. Jesus taught with God's authority. 
He lived by God's time. He taught with God's authority. And we'll see these in turn. So turn to John 7, and we're going to begin by looking at the fact that Jesus lived by God's time. By God's time, his timing. And I'm going to read the first 13 verses. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. Your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Jesus continues to provoke people in these different settings. Who is this man? What is he about? He is clearly an enigma. Now, that's not the easiest English word, and you don't have to Google it on your phone. An enigma is a person or circumstance that is mysterious, difficult, to understand. You can't read this and a lot about Jesus without thinking he's an enigma. So he's just had this confrontation in the synagogue in Capernaum. He's going about in, in Galilee. He will not go about in Judea. Galilee was the northern region of Israel. It's where Capernaum was located. Judea was in the south. So Galilee is kind of like Ras al and Capernaum was kind of like Kuzam. It was a locality within the region. Now, already in this gospel, Jesus has offended Jewish leaders down in Judea, in Jerusalem. He healed a man on the Sabbath. He cleared the temple, chapter 2. He said he was the Son of God, not in competition with God, but in a re unique relationship with God the Father. He's his son, and what's fascinating here is for all the confusion then, all the confusion now, all the misrepresentation there is about Jesus, there wasn't any confusion in his own day at this point. The Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. Why? Because they were not confused by what he claimed. He claimed he was God. 
who had authority to do what only God can do. So he stayed away. The Jewish skepticism, the, the anger at him caused them to seek to kill him. So if you're a skeptic, if you're a Muslim, if you're seeking to make Christ known to Muslim friends, notice the Jewish leaders tried to kill him. They were not confused. They knew what he claimed, what he was saying. They, they weren't just offended by a man who was claiming to be less than God. They knew he was claiming that. Anyway, John tells us in verse 2, at the Feast of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles, your, your text, your version may say either, it's the same thing, that it was at hand. Now you could go back to Leviticus 23 and you can read about this feast at the very end of that chapter. It's remarkable. God's people every year for a week were called to live in, in tabernacles and tents just as they did in the wilderness when God delivered them out of Egypt by His goodness and by His power. Uh, this, this, this week also marked the very end of harvest season, so it was a, a week set aside to, to praise God and to celebrate His work among them, and they did this for generations. It marked them off. God had given them holy days, our origin for holidays, to mark His people off, to teach His people about who He was and to form them as a people so they would understand who they were and who God is. And Jewish people every year during this week would make this trek to Jerusalem to participate in this feast. So Jesus' brothers, they want Jesus to go with them to Judea, where he was trying to stay away from. Now, if you're coming from a Roman Catholic background, I would want you to see Jesus had brothers. And they were from uh, Joseph and Mary. Some have argued he didn't have brothers, that Mary uh, be uh, became and remained a perpetual virgin. So these must have come from another marriage of Joseph. But there's, there's no reason to think that. What is it that Jesus' brothers want? What's their agenda? Verse 3, they want him to go to Judea, that his disciples may see the works he's doing. Because Jesus... If you're really going to go public, if we're going to move from you being a big fish in this small, small pond to, to the big time, you can't do these works in secret. Show yourself to the world. Go to Jerusalem. Do this in front of the big crowds that will be at the feast, in front of all the big leaders. But they have a different agenda than Jesus. They want to whip up a crowd. They want Jesus to be popular. Let's go big, Jesus. Jesus has a very different agenda. It's not to be the king of a crowd. He did not come to tickle the fancy and gain cheap popularity with a very fickle crowd. The brothers think you can do these things. They must see them. Do you remember last week at the end of chapter 6, we saw so clearly there are disciples and there are disciples. Jesus knew all too well the kind of disciples that are just in it for the displays of power, the marvelous works, but will quickly, chapter 6, verse 66, turn back and no longer walk with him. 
once the sting of offense and embarrassment and persecution begins to set in. There's a reason that we still today have one-hit wonders. Bands that write a song and they have this following that has a lot of fervor, they're with them, and then sometime down the road you say, whatever happened to that band or that artist? Usually after the story about drugs and despair, you learn just how far they spiraled, how far away their loyal fans have gone. Jesus didn't come for crowds or for popularity. They want him to show himself to the world. No offense. Go to the festival. But he will not show himself to the world in this way. Now, when you read John's gospel, the word world comes up a lot. What does he mean by the world in his gospel? The world is the organized system of rebellion that human beings are in. Organized system of rebellion by human beings. It it takes different forms in our various cultures and backgrounds, but don't be mistaken, human beings naturally organize ourselves into systems of rebellion. This is the world into which Jesus has come. For God so loved this world that is so bad. And Jesus is not going to show himself to the world on the world's terms. This world is not going to set the agenda for Jesus. And this world cannot set the agenda for the church. Jesus could have impressed the world. He could have given the world everything it it wanted, but it would not have been what the world needs. He certainly would have not made any true disciples. For the world's sake, Jesus came into the world so that many in this world would no longer be of this world. That they would leave the world behind and follow him. This is the same for the church and for any of you who would follow Jesus Christ. Our agenda, your agenda is not set by this world. The church loves the world by not catering to the world on the world's terms. So when we try to attract the world on her terms, we begin to look like and become like the world. And I promise you, for all the talent you all have, we will never outworld this world. What makes us attractive and powerful is when the world sees our love for the Lord and one another, when the world hears of sacrificial love by Jesus Christ for sinners as they really are through his life and death on the cross. We try to attract the world by the world's terms. We blend in. We do not provoke and stand out. When the church is faithful to Jesus, as revealed in his word, she attracts the world to Jesus. So that's why we are totally committed to being a word-centered church, carrying out our ministry under the scripture, listening to the scripture, no matter how foolish it all seems to the world. And when the scriptures are setting our agenda We can be confident we're being useful, no matter what the appearance is otherwise. So certainly, we want to understand the world. We want to be able to communicate clearly to the world. That's why we want to understand the world. But that's 
why we study. We know the world so that we can make the gospel clear, not so we can look like the world. When the church is faithful to Scripture's agenda, she is always relevant to the world. Jesus did not come into the world at the world's request. He wasn't invited. So the world does not set his agenda. And what is so strange is that the world's agenda and Jesus' agenda converged. When? When the world nailed him to the cross. The work he would ultimately do for the world was not the one that the crowds wanted, but the one that left him abandoned and alone and crucified at the cross. Why did his brothers have such a different agenda for Jesus? John tells us explicitly in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. They were in the world, and they were at this point of the world. We've already learned the Jewish leaders sought to kill him. Now we learn even his brothers did not believe in him. Skeptics, skepticism around Jesus. And what's so fascinating is that John doesn't hide this from us. He's not trying to paint for any of us a rosier picture than what was there. A number of you have siblings. I have two brothers. There is nothing like growing up together, is there? All that you experience in the same house, at the same table, so many life experiences under the same parents, you know each other at a deep, deep level. That's the way Jesus' brothers knew Jesus. And yet he was so human to them, they saw nothing different. One teacher says this so well, they did not penetrate to his real identity, and so they did not entrust themselves to him entirely. I mean, imagine this, growing up with the one through whom, for whom, by whom the world was created, and yet you have no idea how veiled his glory must have been in his flesh and blood, when even those who were his flesh and blood did not recognize him, how much more to the world. Their agenda was based in unbelief. They were immersed in this world system. And so it's the world system that set their agenda. So to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, is to be shaped by Jesus and his aims. It's to submit to his wisdom. This is how you resist the pull of worldliness. Falling into the world system. Following him away from and for the sake of the world. How much does the world shape your agenda? Your desires? Has it subtly crept into your own discipleship or thinking? Do you want its approval? Do you want what it wants? Do you settle into what it says that you can or should not do? Do you long for what the world can give you? Be very careful and be very clear. The world has an agenda, and it is not Jesus' agenda. How much are you staring and immersing yourself in the world, and how little are you staring and immersing yourself in 
Jesus. As you stay in the word and you're, you're shaped by the word, you're not just guarding yourself in a fundamentalistic way from the world. You are being shaped to see the world as it is. You might love it and live in it rightly. You're breaking yourself from desires and aspirations and expectations that the world would tell you to have. Pray that the Lord would cause you to see subtle ways the world has crept in. Jesus not only rejected the world's agenda, he also rejected the world's timetable. My time has not yet come, but yours is always here. So what he's saying is he lives by the Father's time, even down to the timetable when he will go to the festival. But for his brothers, who at this point are men of the world, their time is always here. They can go to the feast whenever they want. They can seek to do what the world loves. It's always time for that. That's why, verse 7, the world does not hate them. They just go along with it. They're friends with it. They're men of the world. They think like the world. They operate according to its timetable. They're not aligned with Jesus. It's subtle. But you can start to view your time in a different way than you should as a disciple of Jesus. My time is my own. When the Bible says your days are numbered by God, we gain wisdom when we start to understand time. Our time will not go on forever. Our time will run out. The world does not set the agenda for how we use our time. One reason we're here together this morning. God commands us to be here during this time. Together. Be careful how you're viewing time in your life. To confess Jesus Christ is Lord means you understand Jesus is Lord over your time. Day in, day out, time is one more gift to be used for the glory of God. Why does the world ultimately hate Jesus? Because he tells the truth to the world. He tells the world, your works are evil. And this was remarkable that he was about to speak to Jewish people who had the law and the prophets. Why are the world's works evil? Why? Because the world system does not submit to God revealed in Jesus Christ. It does not. The world can do good works in this sense, in a civil sense, in a civic sense, but not in an ultimate sense. The world can do a good work horizontally. It cannot do a good work vertically. Scriptures are clear that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Prior faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is necessary for a work to be good before God. Jesus will not go to the feast because it's not his time yet. He remained in Galilee, but eventually, verse 10, he did go to the feast. He didn't go publicly. He went privately. What he did was wait to go to Jerusalem at the time set by the Father. His entire life, his times of his life are regulated by God the Father and his timing. His brother's lives are regulated by the timing of the world. They walk to its rhythms. They operate according to the world's desires. 
It's in that sense. They can go any time. But what Jesus does, or he does not do, is of eternal consequence. He lives by the Father's time. So we see the wisdom of this in verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. Of course, that wasn't to give him a friendly welcome. They weren't waiting to serve him tea. Instead, there was much muttering. I mean, look at the different reactions. Some say he's a good man. Others, he's leading people astray. People are already confused who he is, what he's after. And yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about Jesus. Whatever confusion they had about Jesus, they were not confused what the religious leaders of the Jews thought about Jesus. And their fear of them was greater than perhaps even the little faith they had in Jesus. They could not figure him out. The world did not set his agenda. Jesus was not naive about the world. He knew it all too well. He knew, as he says at the end of John 2, what is in the heart of man. And his love is seen in this fact that he did not give the world what it so desperately wanted. He resisted the temptation to be popular, to be widely and cheaply loved for the very people who were fearful to speak of him so that he could do for them what they could not do for themselves. If you're sitting here and you are very comfortable in this world, Jesus threatens you. He comes to interrupt you, to change you. He threatens your agenda. And you know that. You feel that. But it's in interrupting you and your self-centered, comfortable plans that you find in him what you never will find in and of yourself, that he is more satisfying and he gives you what you cannot earn. He gives you himself, life in his name. Do my brothers and sisters rejoice that you do not have to live according to this world's timetable or desires or agenda? Jesus has set you free to live in view of a world in which time does not exist a world in which the, the times of time itself will have run out. Doesn't that encourage you this morning in whatever trial, hardship you're walking through? It doesn't just have an end date. It has an eternal purpose. And this brief time, this brief trial will be used for an eternal weight of glory. If you're in Christ and you're suffering, walking through trial, if you're being faithful in very difficult circumstances, because you're following Jesus, keep going. Keep using this time for the Father's purposes and not the world. And I promise you, like your Savior, you will not have wasted your time. Jesus lived by God's time until his time had come to give up his life for the sake of the world. Who is it that sets the agenda of your life? What are you doing with the time God has given you? 
that will run out. Jesus lived by God's time. What about you? He also taught with God's authority. Jesus taught with God's authority. Let's read verses 14 through 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now this is quite the contrast, isn't it, with these last 13 verses? Jesus was staying away. He remained in private, not in public. And then here he's very public. What gives? Jesus' goal was not just to be private. He certainly didn't come just to do miracles and signs for their own sake. They had their place. His teaching takes priority. Clarity about his person takes priority. What a teaching session this was. They're astonished by him. So learned, never studied. And what they mean is he had never undergone formal rabbinic training. Now, he would have studied the law and the prophets as he grew up. I remember as I thought about Jesus growing up more and more, I asked one of my own teachers, when do you think it was that Jesus started to self-consciously read the Bible and understand it was all about him? Who he was. We don't know that exactly. He certainly knew something when he was a boy there in the temple and the teachers were astonished by him. When his parents actually did find him, he said to them, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? That's actually how John Schultz encouraged me two weeks ago after the sermon. He wrote me a message and said, don't be discouraged. Jesus' own parents lost him at one point in his life. Thank you, John. Jesus may not have had formal rabbinic training, but he knew the scriptures. He knew they were about him. That's what surprised him. There was no human explanation for his power and learnedness, his might, except his teaching, his knowledge of the scriptures. He was an enigma. He's a mystery. And he only confuses them more when he says, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. 
Now, it would have been common in that day for uh, a teacher to say, my teaching is of rabbi so-and-so. Not Jesus. No human being has given him this authority, but the Father who sent him. And Jesus is not trying to justify himself by human authority. Instead, what's amazing is he turns the question on them in verse 17. He knows they don't understand who he is, but he knows they don't first understand themselves. Their problem here is not fundamentally intellectual. It is spiritual. It is moral. It's exposing them to themselves. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or from my own authority. I think his mastery as a teacher is that this crowd cannot figure him out. Here is Jesus helping them figure themselves out, showing them who they are. Why can't they understand who he is? Figure out his authority because their will is not to do God's will. Their need is spiritual. Their need is not first intellectual. Uh, If you're like me at all, when I was younger, I, I was discouraged at times when people who were great intellects of the world did not believe in Jesus and even would try to disprove God or his existence. What did it mean that they didn't believe and yet I do? Well, I hope with maturity and time, I begin to see that certainly intellect matters, knowledge matters, but it's not ultimate. The fool in Scripture is not the one who is not learned. It is the one who does not fear God. Jesus means for his listeners to understand their confusion is based in who they are. Do you know why you, do you know why some of your friends do not ultimately understand or believe in Jesus. It's because of the posture of their heart toward God. Take care, brothers and sisters, that you guard your heart, that you humble yourself, that you take deliberate steps, whatever they may be, to keep your heart soft before the Lord. Do not lose your heart. Guard it. So much is riding on the posture of your heart. Older people that grow bitter and angry. Jealousy eats them up. One way to help yourself is to constantly rehearse and recount the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself, I am a sinner. I am a man or a woman who needs God's grace and mercy. And God has given me that grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Through the cross and his resurrection, it is hard to become prideful or bitter or angry when you first understand yourself deeply to have been given grace. It gives you fuel for obeying Jesus. Now, what do you do if, if you're here, you're on the fence, or you do not believe in Jesus? Well, Jesus is saying that the reason you ultimately do not believe in him, whatever questions you have, and feel free to ask them, is that you do not desire to do God's will, the God who is there. Now, I promise you, I know that's offensive. But is it true? Whose will governs your life? Whose agenda governs your life? Who has authority in your life? I would challenge you to ask yourself that question and then pray you have the courage to answer it. 
Truth vindicates itself. It verifies itself. For the one who does God's will, the one who has this basic faith commitment, the truth will verify itself. You will know that Jesus' teaching is from God. Now, if you know Jesus, you know this. You know by faith, subjectively, by the Spirit working, it's true. When it comes to ultimate truth, it does not need outside vindication. It doesn't need a higher court because it's the truth. And you might say that's a circular argument, that I cannot stand up here and say that Jesus' teachings and words are true just because Jesus' teaching and words are true. But at some point, there's nothing higher, there's no higher court to which to go. It's the highest truth. And that's the case with Jesus and his words. All of Scripture, it comes with the authority of God. No human counsel, no church stands over it. We're under it. Jesus claimed to teach with God's authority. And if you have faith in the Father, you know his teaching is from God. That's what Jesus ultimately claims. He reveals to the crowd, verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. So to fail to submit to the authority of God in Jesus is to seek human glory. That's ultimately what's at stake here. It's not the the turn you would have expected Jesus to take, to to talk about glory. That's where he goes. Ultimately, human pride, the desire for self-glory, not God's glory, prevents people from discerning who Jesus is. Jesus seeks the glory of him who sent him. Jesus is true. In Jesus, there is no falsehood. Do you realize that's what's at the heart of true and false religion? Whose glory is is its aim? In any false religion, any false religion, man can cooperate in some way such that he can say of himself, I did this or that. I earned enough. I did enough such that God owes me. I did enough to deserve mercy. But whatever it is, man will be able to get glory. Man-made religion seeks man-made glory. True religion, religion from above, seeks God's glory alone. So the, the question is, whose glory are you chasing? Who sets the agenda for your life? Isn't it thrilling to think you were made for glory? The Christian gospel is the only gospel that gives you such dignity that it tells you you didn't fall short of rules, ultimately, or law. You weren't just made to be a rule keeper. You fell short of God's glory. That's what sin has ultimately done to you. In sinning against God, you've fallen short of the glory of God because God made you for glory. But we've turned inward. We're these strange creatures that have exchanged the glory of God for human things and created things. And Jesus is not just coming to the world to make us better, but to restore us to glory, to give us life in his name. He did this, and this is the irony, by dying on an inglorious cross. If he had spoken by his own authority, he would have stayed dead. But he spoke by God's authority, and it was proved by being raised from the dead. And so he ascended into glory where he reigns even now. And so he says now to the world that seeks lesser glories, repent of the lesser glories you seek and believe in me. By faith in Christ, be reconciled to God. 
and you will be, this is what's remarkable, destined for glory. Whose glory do you desire? By repentance and faith in Jesus, you can live for God's. This crowd is satisfied with human glory. They're satisfied with what they understand of Moses and the law. And Jesus confronts them at this point. Verse 19, Moses gave you the law. None of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? What's remarkable is they prided themselves, didn't they, in keeping the law? And yet they sit there and they want to break the law by killing Jesus. They do not desire God's will. They do not believe he has God's authority. They believe he has a demon. So what does Jesus do? He gives them here a lesson on the law. Beginning there in verse 21. Back in chapter 5 of this gospel, John healed a, a lame or a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem. And instead of rejoicing in the fact that Jesus had done this, the religious leaders wanted to kill him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he says, you marvel at one work. They're not marveling at the fact that he healed a lame man. They are marveling that Jesus would dare kill a man on the Sabbath and tell him to take up his mat and walk. They wrongly understand the Sabbath because they do not understand Moses, because they do not desire to do the will of God. And so Jesus puts Moses in his place. He teaches them about circumcision, which Moses commanded, but it was actually formally instituted before Moses with Abraham, the fathers, wasn't it? Moses only later gave it in the law formally for God's people. And so for centuries, God's people had been commanded on the eighth day, circumcise your newborn boy. Of course, that meant that many times the eighth day of a boy's life fell on the Sabbath day. And so they had to make a decision. Do we circumcise our son on the Sabbath, on the eighth day, or do we disobey the command to circumcise on the eighth day? And Jesus is saying, for centuries, you've made the right decision. You circumcised your boys on the eighth day. And yet, what did Jesus do in chapter 5 that caused these religious leaders to view him and want to kill him with anger? He didn't affect one part of a man's body on the Sabbath. He healed the whole man when he made him walk. Jesus prioritized what should have been prioritized and so he's saying your judgment falls short because your understanding of the true meaning of the law falls short and your lives fall, fall short because you do not seek the glory of God. You judge with human appearances. You seek the wrong glory. How do you judge Jesus? The answer lies in the agenda of your life, your own agenda or God's. Ironically, all of these leaders who thought they stood in judgment over Jesus were there exposed to the heart by Jesus. Jesus' entire life set by the Father's time. He teaches with God's authority. He exposes their agenda. Who sets yours? How are you ensuring that the agenda of your life, if you follow Jesus, will not go off course? The only way agendas are kept is with intentionality, and that can be in a meeting or in your life. Are you intentional about the right things or the wrong things? Jesus, who lived by God's agenda, frees you to do the same. You live in a world whose time will run out. 
But for those who judge rightly and listen to Jesus and so resist the agenda of this world, Jesus is clear, glory is coming. And so it is only by listening to Jesus as you walk through this world that judges only by appearances that you will make judgments that are eternally wise and true.